Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. This evening uh, in our series through the Gospel of Mark, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 17. And you'll notice uh, the series title uh, of our evening series, Knowing Jesus. Um, hopefully you're not thinking, uh, Pastor, I already know Jesus. Why are we, why are we doing this? Yes, I, I know that you know Jesus. Praise God. Uh, I know him too. But do we need to get to know him better? Uh, do we need to grow in our knowledge of him? Do we need to grow in our understanding of, of who he was and what he came to do? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. And so that's why we are walking through this wonderful uh, gospel uh, account, this account of Christ's life and ministry, that we would know him better, that we would trust him more, that we would uh, understand more and more what it means to be loved by God uh, in his son. And so let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, as we continue walking through this uh, wonderful gospel. He, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words of your Son, that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners, because we are sinners, and we need Christ. We need his grace. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would hear this message once again, loud and clear this evening. And that we would believe and revel in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is a friend of sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Donald McLeod, in his superb book entitled, Christ Crucified, Understanding the Atonement, he writes that, quote, not only did Christ die for sin... He also died for sinners. Not only did he die for sin, but he also died for sinners. He died, that is, in our place as our substitute, end quote. Beloved, this is why Jesus came. Not to give inherently righteous people a better life in this world or life hereafter through the performance of merit-based works nor to make good people a little bit better, which I think is something that seems to come through in a lot of evangelicalism, that that's Christ came to make good people a little better. That's not why he came. Nor did he come to provide morally upstanding people with good advice and life coaching to keep them moving heavenward. No. No, Jesus came to save Sinners. That's why he came. 
He came to save sinners. Not the righteous, not the moral, but sinners. He came to save sinners through the shedding of his own blood on Calvary's cursed tree. The good news this evening is that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And nowhere in Scripture is this good news better communicated than in the passage before us this evening. There are really three simple points uh, that I want to uh, make tonight, really three simple headings. Uh, Number one, we have a call to discipleship. Number two, we have an invitation to dinner. And number three, we have a call to soul-sick sinners. That could also be a tongue twister for you at no extra charge. A call to soul-sick sinners. A call to discipleship, an invitation to dinner, a call to soul-sick sinners. First of all, a call to discipleship. Look with me again at verses 13 and 14. Mark reports that Jesus, quote, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. Jesus' popularity was growing among the common people. It was continuing to grow. Crowds swelled around him as he was walking by the seaside. What was Jesus doing? Well, we are told he was teaching. And again, here we are seeing the rhythm and priorities of Christ's earthly ministry. He was a preacher and a teacher. A lot of people these days will put emphasis on other parts of Christ's ministry, but this, we see, is a priority. We saw it in our text from last week in verse 2. You see there that he was preaching the word to them. This week's text in verse 13, he was teaching them. Indeed, let's not forget that the proclamation of the Word of God was the priority of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, and it still is. It still is the priority of Christ as he is in heaven. It's his priority. For it is through the Word of the gospel that sinners are brought from spiritual life to spiritual, from spiritual death rather, to spiritual life. It is through the proclamation of the Word. That true saving faith is created, strengthened, assured, and comforted. Let me say that again. It is through the proclamation of the Word of God that true saving faith is created, strengthened, assured, and comforted. Indeed, Paul writes in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Moreover, it's why in some of his final written words, Paul exhorts Timothy to, quote, preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2. So Jesus is teaching the crowds by the seaside. What happens next? Well, what happens next is that Christ calls his seventh disciple, namely Levi, also called Matthew. Look with me at verse 14. And as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. The first thing we should notice is where Levi is sitting. 
He is sitting at a tax booth. Levi was a tax collector. Now, some may read this uh, detail of the story and shrug their shoulders and, and move on, but, but Levi's vocation is a significant part of this narrative and reinforces the message that Jesus is a friend of sinners. You see, in Jesus' day, tax collectors were despised. They were regarded with contempt. They were viewed as both extortioners and traitors. Let me explain. In various regions of the Roman Empire, there were what were called chief tax collectors, and then there were uh, tax collectors below them, um, junior tax collectors, as it were, that were spread all around. The chief tax collectors would oversee the other tax collectors, and of course, they were there to collect taxes from the people. It was likely that Levi in this region assisted in collecting taxes on merchandise that passed between Syria and Egypt. The way that they were compensated, these tax collectors, was by collecting more money than what was required by the Roman government. And here's the thing. The Roman government wasn't entirely concerned with how much the tax collectors demanded above the tax so long as they got what was required for Rome. Thus, these tax collectors were viewed as extortionists. But that's not all. They were also viewed as traitors. Why? Because they were Jews working for the oppressive and idolatrous Roman government. Jewish tax collectors like Levi were getting wealthy from collecting taxes for Rome, whom the Jews viewed as oppressors, the empire from which the Jews longed to be liberated. But Jesus saved Levi and called him to a life of discipleship. Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, when we read this narrative, uh, uh, perhaps you're envisioning the Jesus movies from the 70s where the, the skinny white Jesus walks up like a robot and says, follow me. And then the guy gets up like the, it's the first time he's ever seen Jesus. And he just follows him. That's, I don't think that's what happened. This is an abbreviation of the story. It's very likely um, that Matthew or Levi was already uh, listening to Jesus, hearing Jesus, maybe had some conversations with him and was at the cusp of following him and, and believing in him and becoming a disciple. And so this would have been a, a summarized version of that, that exchange. What did Levi do when Jesus said, follow me? He rose and followed him, the text says. He rose and followed him. And by the way, beloved, this is something that everyone who is a follower of Christ must do at one point in their life, right? You can grow up in the church. You can be baptized as an infant and hear the gospel promises your whole life. But the fact is, every person who is a follower of Christ must, by God's grace, let me tell you, rise up and follow Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be saved by grace and to rise up and to follow him. That is what Christians, by God's grace, do. It's what true followers of Christ do. By grace, they follow him. 
They turn from following the subjective notions of their own hearts. They turn from all the the subjective leanings of their own hearts and they follow Christ and his word. They turn from following the changing values and ungodly principles of this world and they follow Christ. Of course, this is not without sin because Christians have remaining indwelling sin that they fight against, but they grow and they are sanctified and growing in Christ. But the pattern and course of one's life when Christ saves them and calls them to a life of discipleship is changed, of course. They deny self, take up the cross, and follow Christ. That is the pattern of a life in Christ. In Luke's account of Levi's call to discipleship in Luke chapter 5, verse 28, he writes this, And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. He left everything. He left everything. By grace through faith in Christ, Levi was born again. And he responded to the call of Christ by rising up to follow him. And he forsook all to follow him. Before we go on to the next section, it's important for us to ask ourselves, do I believe in Christ? Do I believe in him that he came to become my substitute on Calvary, that he bore God's wrath for me, that he died for me, that he rose from the dead for me? Have I received him and am I walking in him as my Savior and my Lord? Have, and, and have I committed by faith to follow him? It's wonderful when we come to the Gospels and when we see all the different expressions of, of faith and we see all the different ways that God is working by His Spirit that we see that these things, we look at them from different angles and, and, and we know that from every angle, it's all of grace that anyone would believe the Gospel and walk with Christ and follow Him and be willing to, 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 to follow Him at all costs. It's all of grace. But in these stories, we get different... Uh, different angles and different uh, pictures of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and this is one of them. Those who believe in Christ follow Christ. They deny self, take up their cross, and follow him. And here we have something wonderful set forth in our text, a truth, and it is this, that God saves tax collectors and sinners. God saves tax collectors and sinners, not just in the first century, but today. But today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. What happens next not only shows the love of Christ for sinners, but also the fruit of Levi's saving faith. We have next in verse 15 an invitation to dinner. Look with me at verse 15. And as he, that is Jesus, reclined at table in his, that is Levi's, house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So we see here that Levi was converted to Christ and answers Christ's call to discipleship. And what's the first thing that Mark reports about Levi's new life in Christ? Levi wants his notorious friends to know and follow Jesus too. He wants his friends to know Christ. 
He wants them to be rescued from the bondage and penalty of sin. He knows that Jesus is the only way to be set free, so he invites them into his home to meet Christ. Did you hear what verse 15 says? Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Beloved, if you were around this bunch, you would, and I would, we would probably hesitate to invite them around our dinner table. This was a motley crew, if there ever was one. They were the bottom rung on the ladder of society, the lowlifes of the town, as it were, the despised and the degenerate ones. One commentator explains that the term sinners here in the Greek references not just ordinary sinners, as it were, but, quote, the notoriously immoral, end quote. The notoriously immoral. This probably means that there were thieves, harlots, adulterers, and other reputably sinful people present at Levi's table. And then there was Jesus, fully God, fully man, without sin, with a heart abounding in love for sinners, reclining at the table with them. And it says that many of them followed Jesus. What are a couple of lessons we can take away from Levi's banquet? The first one is this. Christ's followers want others to know and follow him too. Christ's followers want others to know and follow him too. This is the fruit of sincere faith and a healthy walk with God. By the way, this is also... In human terms, now we know Christ is going to build his church. We know God is going to protect his church. He's been doing it for centuries through very challenging times. Through floods and fires, he has been sustaining his church. His church has been growing. But the way the church grows is not by retreating and being the so-called holy huddle and, 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 and just retreating into our own relationships and so forth and so on. Christianity will be at its healthiest and, and it will grow when we are on the offensive with a heart of love. Evangelistic. Thinking about the hearts and lives of others. Having the compassion of Christ in our hearts for those that are lost. This morning as... We were doing communion at 12.05. We had finished serving here, and so I just stood at the table and, and was just praying for all those who were receiving the elements and, and walking by. And I was just thinking just pastorally of all the, the challenges that our people are walking through, uh, the difficulties of life, and, and continuing in the faith, 
continuing to come forward to receive Christ and to rest in him and to, and to believe in him. And I also was mindful of the fact that so many of these that were walking by did not grow up in a Christian home. There was someone who shared the gospel with them. There was someone who invited them to church. There was someone who reached out to them. And there are countless numbers of non-Christians, of people walking around without hope in this dark world right now. And we have the gospel to give to them. And so this is a wonderful lesson we learned from this. Christ followers want others to know and to follow him too. This is indeed the fruit of sincere faith and a healthy walk with God. To put it plainly, if we are unconcerned for the lost and unmoved by the spiritual darkness in our friends, family members, and neighbors, then we are not walking closely with Christ. It's the pulse beat of a strong walk with God to care and to be concerned with, and to pray about, and to reach out to others who do not know Christ. Christ came to seek and to save the lost. His heart is one of compassion and love for sinners. To walk closely with Christ, therefore, is also to have compassion for the lost and to seek opportunities to introduce him to others. You say, I don't know how to do that, Pastor. I just don't. I don't know how to do that. You don't need to be a world-class apologist to do that. You spend time with them. You show them that you care. You share with them the gospel. You share with them what the Lord has done for you. And you invite them to church. You invite them into your home. You show them the love of Christ. The Lord uses these things. So Christ's followers want others to know and follow him too. Secondly, Jesus loves sinners. He came to save sinners. He came to die for tax collectors and sinners of all kinds to redeem us from both the power and penalty of our sins. He is full of love and compassion and came to earth to lavish grace upon grace to wretched sinners like us. That is what we learn from this. John Newton, the notorious 17th century slave trader turned Christian and then turned gospel preacher, he knew this better than anyone that Jesus loved sinners. He loved to write about it in his hymns, of course. We have amazing grace. But listen to this verse. O wondrous love to bleed and die, to bear the cross and shame, that guilty sinners such as I might plead Thy gracious name. Oh, wondrous love. Oh, wondrous love. What a Savior. Surely, everyone would rejoice in Jesus' presence among these sinful people. Right? For who needs grace and forgiveness more than these people? Well, in verse 16, we learn that the scribes of the Pharisees were very displeased. It says that, quote, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
This is what the religious leaders were, were saying. These scribes of the Pharisees were basically the interpreters of the law and the tradition that existed alongside the law. You know, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount would say something like this, you heard that it was said, and then he would state the, the law, and he said, but I say, and then he would give the true interpretation of law because what the Pharisees did and why they were considered such legalists was not simply because they believed that there was a road to salvation through good works, but that around the law, in order to help people to obey the law better, they made a bunch of other laws around it. Does this sound familiar? I'm glad this doesn't happen in our day. There was the law, and then there were all of these gazillion laws around the law to help people to obey the law. And so it, 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 um, it fostered a, a context of, of judgmentalism and criticism um, and suspicion rather than one of love and understanding the true law. But these scribes of the Pharisees were basically the interpreters of the law and the tradition that existed with the law. The Pharisees, of course, were the religious leaders who separated themselves from the people in order to model, in order to display piety. But they were exceedingly self-righteous and looked down condescendingly on others. These scribes of the Pharisees were probably spying on Jesus, hoping to find something for which they could blame him. In their minds, this was it. He was making himself ceremonially unclean in their minds by interacting and spending time with these sinners. And to share a meal with these sinners meant that in some way he was condoning their lifestyle. But that wasn't the case at all. It was for sinners that he came. Perhaps the parable that best illustrates this situation is found in Luke 18. 9 through 14. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Luke 18, 9 through 14. And this parable is sort of one that you should just know the address. Luke 18, 9 through 14. You should know the address. You should be thinking about this parable regularly. It is central, I believe, in terms of what it means to be a Christian and how to carry on as a Christian. So Jesus tells this parable in Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So this is who he's speaking to. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a what? A tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, who's he thinking about there? Tax collectors. Unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, 
a sinner. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Who went away justified? The lowly, sinful tax collector who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who went away condemned? The religious leader who believed in himself, who trusted in himself that he was righteous. Of course, held up to God's law, nobody is righteous. Nobody reaches the standard, which is why we need Christ. Beloved, please hear this. True piety, true Christian piety, never stops humbling oneself before holy God, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Amen? It's why I'm always just almost in shock when a church will not have a confession of sin in their worship service. You go to the whole worship service, there's no acknowledgement of sin. 45 minutes of music, no acknowledgement of sin. No confession of sin. It's central to what it means to be a Christian that we acknowledge our sin. Because when we acknowledge our sin, we acknowledge our need for Christ, our sinless substitute. As soon as we lose this perspective on salvation, we've started to adopt the attitude of the Pharisees. What Jesus says next is good news to soul-sick sinners like us. Look at verse 17 with me. And when Jesus heard it, when he heard the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Beloved, whoever says, man, I feel great, I'm going to go to the doctor. No man ever says that, I'll tell you that. Uh, not too many men say, I feel terrible, I'm going to the doctor. Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms here. Those who are well, that is, those who think they are well, have no need of a physician in their own minds, but those who are sick do. What's the point? Well, remember, Jesus is responding to the self-righteous scribes of the Pharisees who are complaining that Jesus was dining and fellowshipping with such immoral rabble. He is saying, these are the kinds of people that I came to save. These are the ones. Can you imagine if the message was something to the effect of Jesus came to save people who just had it all together and were rising to a very high moral standard? First of all, you would never know what that standard actually was. It would be arbitrary from home to home, from family to family. But here Christ clearly communicates that he came to save wretched sinners, soul-sick sinners, because we do have a spiritual disease. It's been passed down to us from Adam. It, the evidence of it, the symptoms of it are in our lives daily. 
and we need a Savior. Jesus is saying, these are the kind of people I came to save. Sinners that wouldn't deny that they are sinners. Sinners who who know that they are sinners. Unlike the self-righteous Jewish uh, religious leaders who those sinners and hypocrites themselves didn't think that they were and didn't see any need for a savior. Jesus' gospel call, dear ones, it goes out to sinners, not to those who view themselves as righteous on their own. And so as we conclude, I want to give three very simple exhortations and applications. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and so trust in him. Trust in him. By his his grace, put your faith in him because he is a friend of sinners. Secondly, Jesus is a friend of sinners, and so introduce others to him. Introduce other sinners to him. Yes, there will be some that will think they're okay on their own, like the scribes of the Pharisees. They will think they've got it all together. They don't, they don't need a Savior. But introduce others to him, because there will be some that will say, yes, I recognize my need. I recognize my sin, and I recognize that I need Christ. So let's introduce him to others. Thirdly, Jesus is a friend of sinners. And so follow him. Follow him. Trust in him. Introduce others to him. And follow him. And how do you follow him? Well, you follow him according to his word, according to his commands. His commands, they show us how short we have fallen from God's holy standard, but As we are in Christ, the one who met the standard and died for our sins, now in him we live according to that word by faith. Well, one hymn writer expressed his heart this way, and may it be the expression of all of our hearts as we think of Jesus, the friend of sinners. I've found a friend, oh, such a friend. He bled, he died to save me. And not alone the gift of life, but his own self he gave me. Not that I have mine own, I'll call, I'll hold it for the giver. My heart, my strength, my life, my all are his and his forever. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel and this simple, clear message that your son, whom you sent into the world, who you spared not, is a friend of sinners. And, O Lord, may we never forget this. And may we share him with others, even as Levi did with such zeal in the early days of his conversion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us now stand and sing together an appropriate hymn for this evening. Jesus, what a friend of sinners, number 456, number 456.